loath as I am to do this, I feel like this episode requires some introduction or explanation. Uh, Casanova Frankenstein and I discuss race quite a bit. I'm sure the subject would have come up anyway, as we're both black cartoonists, and part of the reason I wanted to talk to him is to discuss that overlap that we have coming from similar though not identical circumstances but uh the interview took place the day after george floyd was lynched by the minneapolis police so that definitely i'm sure was at the back of our mind although it doesn't come up explicitly the sound quality is not the best we didn't have the best connection so um, the audio does drop out here and there. It's a little rough. I, and uh, it was recorded over two sessions. So there might be a slight lapse in continuity, if you will. I first became familiar with Casanova's work through his book, Purgatory, which was published by Fantagraphics Underground. It's an excellent read if you get a chance. Definitely order it. His latest book we discuss is the Ted Martin Omnibus, which is available on lulu.com. I'd hoped that it would have arrived by the time I released this episode, but unfortunately it hasn't. But I will go ahead and recommend it in advance because I just love the hell out of Casanova's work. It's all great. Follow him on Instagram. Follow him on Flickr. Anyway. Here's uh, me with Casanova, Nobody Frankenstein. What's happening? Man, I don't know. I'm just uh, just hanging out with the dog. I was watching some videos and stuff, but, um, you know, just trying to, like, be creative, but it ain't happening. Uh-huh. Is it, is it not happening today, or is it not happening generally? Like, is this a long-term thing, or uh Well, it's, it's like comics. I'm not able to draw them really anymore. It just takes too much effort, uh-huh. you know? So I've been trying to draw, like... Um, like that that uh um what is it uh that coach he's drawn there's like regular illustrations you know uh-huh. yeah but uh the comics man the comics are, are not really happening that might be the last tad martin this yeah. yeah so have, have you had have you hit like dry spells like that before have you thought like that's a wrap on comics before or no i haven't you know i've had the dry spells but um that's just recently started like last year and it, it gets more and more frustrating when I, you know, because it's like it takes longer and longer to get stuff done. And I think part of it is I'm not in the zone. You know, yeah. something happened to that, that that zone, the mental, the mental thing. And I, I have I have multiple sclerosis, so I think it's like a disconnect up here. Does that have like a, an effect on that, or does it? I, I know you posted that it made it more difficult for you to work. It's a concentration thing for one. 
the other thing is it's a um when i used to draw i used to just get into like the the two pages a day you know just knock that out you know now yeah. i'm just like i'll i'll just look at a panel and i'll just be like for three hours trying to get that straight you know maybe you know a big part of it could be that i'm trying too hard to um to make everything look right i'm trying to balance the page with um panels so that the panels like work with each other and then they work as a whole with the page and it just it's not fun anymore so you know <laughs> Comics is one of those funny things because, like, when I, you know, a lot of my friends are cartoonists, and when we talk about being productive or, like, you know, backing off of productivity, it's hard to encourage people to get back into it because there's just not a good reason to do it in the first place. If you, if you have any other kind of outlet, like, if you like shooting rats, you know, that's a better outlet than making comics because comics is just nothing but a frustration. The thing about it is, is that. I think that a big part of it is I've said everything that I need to say. Yeah. So comics really doesn't have a purpose. I've, I've like written all the stuff I felt was emotionally important that people read. Uh, maybe they'd get something out of it. You know, I would like, I'd get something out of it because I'd be um, figuring out situations that I had gone through. So when you like put it down on paper and you're looking at it and you, you're like, you go back and you remember all this stuff and while you're remembering it, you're thinking about it with the mind you have now and you're like, huh, okay. All right. I see now. I mean, you know, I was too dependent or, you know, or they were wrong or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah you so, definitely get like a different, um, I guess it's like a more objective viewpoint when you're taking those memories and trying to translate it into a narrative. It definitely does tease out some issues that you, when you're just thinking about it, might not come up. Right. I think that, and you said like objective, it only works if you are able to step outside of yourself. Let's yeah. put it that way. Otherwise, you're never going to get that objectivity. You're going to like, like, uh, what's his name? Um, Joe Matt. His stuff isn't objective at all. You know, I don't think. Whereas Harvey, yeah, Harvey Picard, he wasn't objective either. That was just straightforward. You know, um, this is what happened. And this is what I did. And this is how I was feeling. And it's all in the past, you know. But I try to, like, make it so that I'm not heroic. I'm not a victim. Um, because either one of those, to me, is, like, is disingenuous. Well, it tilts. Kind of tries to tilt and 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 bring the reader over to one side or another versus just giving them the situation and letting them take it where they will. Right. And I've had like reviews that, that, you know, for some people, they don't understand that, you know, is there, well, there's no heroes and there's no uh, explanation of of it. And I I was thinking maybe it's just, there's too many comics now that, you know, it's just happy stuff. I don't see anybody like really drawing anything that has any pathos or any like, it's just always like if my family was great and we went to the beach, uh, you know, <laughs> I love my girlfriend. Something that has some kind of something to it. Yeah. What's your happy life? That makes me feel worse. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the first book that I read from you was Purgatory. I found that at my local comic shop, and I, I think I'd read something written up about it on the comics journal maybe and yeah that's like when i immediately like i was just like this looks very similar to my experience like not exactly but just kind of i don't know the the misfit nerdy black kid who uh gets his ass kicked all the time <laughs> you know 
know what was funny? When I went off to college, it was like I was the coolest dude at school. Everybody thought I was, but it was all white dudes. You know, it's like, oh man, you are so cool. You know, (laughs) nothing changed between that, you know, my freshman year in in college and my senior year in in high school. I'm the same person. That tells me these white dudes have a different perspective on what cool is. I think that that black people in general, their idea of what cool is, is going to be more fashionable or more style or more, you know, something like that, you know. But if you're like walking around with your ripped up jean shorts and all that stuff, you know, you can't be cool. Oh, you're a target. You're you're just like, okay, you we're all poor here, but you're really showing you're poor. You're wearing those bobos like, you know, I got picked on so bad and I'm just like, you're poor, too, dude. Like we're in the same boat. I don't understand why. Why do you have to be like that? Man, you're not supposed to like that's the thing is like it's what they call it. Ghetto fabulous to like uh, make it so what you have. Well, what you have, it becomes the, the center focal point of who you are. Right. Which is disturbing because the people that fall for that materialism, they don't develop themselves personally. They just they're really concerned about what other people are thinking of. So they they don't delve into like more. If you're if you're just laying back and and you're you're thinking about um, like, you know, what could I have done better in that situation? And you're being introspective. Well, if you are just making money to do things to impress other people, you're never going to be introspective. You're going to be always thinking about what they're thinking more than what you're thinking. Yeah, it becomes you know? kind of like a game of chess. Exactly. Like, and you have to like keep up. Yeah, it's weird because it's to keep up with the Joneses thing, but for black people, keeping up with the Joneses isn't about isn't about the house you have. It isn't about the appliances and all that stuff. It, it's more about the car and the clothes. Mm-hmm. The, the two, you know, the two things that to me, you know, it, it, keeping up with the Jones even for the white people is foolish. But to have it like, you know, so that the clothes mean so much is um, that is a waste of money, you know, and I don't like I don't have money to waste. I don't I can see how people like manage to live and spend the money they do if they don't if they're poor. I, I don't get it. I've never understood that. <sighs> oh, man. Depressing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like I lived in Houston for years, like in the late 70s to early 80s, then moved down to um, even people in Texas don't know this town. Dickinson. Have you heard of that place? No, it's 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 like a half hour outside of Houston, but it's the country. Um, and we, like, I mean, the country. Um, I visited there again for the first time two years ago like for the first time in 30 years. And I was not prepared for how backwards <laughs> it was. Like it was. I, I like the country in some ways, but um, it's, it's hard to, um, at least for me, when I was in Jackson, it, uh, you had like a, a three, like a four mile drive to get to the nearest store. It's down like back roads and, you know, and, and to me, that's just too fucking far to get yeah. to anything. If you want to get to a hospital, you got to drive into the city, and that's like like 45 minutes to get there, you know. So, I, you know, you get like lost in this. Um, whenever I'm there, I just get a bad vibe. I'm just just waiting to leave. 
to visit my father, it's just like, hey, how you doing? Try to keep a cheerful face when I get the fuck out of here. And when, when um, I, I remember like a lot of your comics take place in Chicago. So what's the, the Mississippi connection? My parents both uh, were born in Mississippi. My mother was raised in Mississippi. My father, he came to Chicago as a little kid, but he went back to Mississippi to uh, go to college. And that's where he met my mother. Okay. As, uh, he was uh, going to school with her brother. It's a weird story, man. Um, this is a weird story. My, my, my family's like haunted. I I think all black families are haunted, <laughs> but yeah, please tell me about your haunting. <laughs> My father um, grew up in Chicago South, so when he was I think, 15, 16 years old, he um, fell in love with this girl, and she died of a brain tumor, and so he was all broken up and stuff like that. You know, he didn't want to like get serious. You know, he play around with girls and stuff, and so he um, gets to Mississippi and uh, he's friends with this this uh, guy, Carl. And so Carl says, well, you know, why don't you come visit, uh, you know, visit my, my house, you know. So he goes into Jackson. He's at the his uh, aunt's candy store, uh, half a block away from Carl's house. So he's at the candy store and he's like, you know, looking over uh, at the house and he sees this girl. And the girl looks pretty much exactly like the girl that he that had died and that turned out to be my mother okay well he saw it so here's here's the the official story the official story is that um my father left college because he was um he was uh, uh afraid of like all the civil rights stuff that was happening he goes back to chicago he happens to meet my mother uh, there, sees her on a bus, like just randomly in Chicago. They sneak off and they get married. My uh, grandparents were paying for his apartment, but they find out that he's married now. So then they have a real, you know, have a wedding. That's the, the story that he tells. But that makes no sense to me. Right. What makes sense to me is that he knows this is the girl that he wants, but his family doesn't like her or her they think that her family's trash they're not about you know him and her and he wants to quit college when he wants to get married they're like no 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 we ain't having so he actually leaves i believe he leaves to go back to chicago because they figured out a way that she could also come to chicago and then like this happens without the parents knowing so there's no interference there. You know, they're together. They get married on the sly. That makes a lot more sense than, you know, oh, man, I, I just left. because I left the girl that I was deeply in love with. It reminded me of my dead girlfriend that I'd never meet another one like that again in my life. I left her because, you know, just there because I was afraid of white people and I was never going to see her again. It was all right. Me. Uh, that don't make no sense to me. You know, that is crazy. But even now, you know. And it's weird because every time he'll tell the story, he'll tell it slightly differently. Like some fact will be like, like he'll bring up something he didn't bring up before that like, you go, okay. Or like something will change. Oh no, it wasn't on the bus. It was like uh, uh, 
well, well, I knew that she was going to um, she was going to be a, a nurse, you know, stuff. that. Yeah. He, yeah. Plus, here's like here's a weird thing. My mother died recently of a brain tumor. So do you. Just like the girlfriend. Yeah. My father, again, not the most introspective person. He's getting better, though. But he had he told me about this dream he had. And in the dream, it was his cousin, uh, Charlene, she's also dead, sitting next to my mother, also dead. And the girl, what was her name? Um, say Angie. And Angie was sitting like, like they were on a train and she was sitting like opposite my mother and Charlene. And my father w- was there, too. Angie looks at at my mother and she says, you know, you married my husband. And then, like, Charlene just looks over at my father, and she just kind of smiles. And then my mother looks over and smiles. And my father doesn't get it. He's like, I don't know what that means. I'm like, yeah, dude. <laughs> 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 so, your subconscious knows. Your, you know. yeah, your subconscious will tell you out, for sure. For sure. So what's in it for him after all this time to well, continue to, like, have that story? Like, what's there to protect I think that part of it is um, he doesn't want me to tell my grandmother mm-hmm. because the story that they told uh, to her was like the story that he tells to me. Yeah. If it were to like come out, he had planned this whole thing. He had dropped out of college. He had planned the whole thing just so he could marry this girl that they didn't like. They still never liked her. That would just be fucked up at this point. You know, my grandmother never liked fucking let that go. Gee, that's some, that is some, uh, that's some yeah. industrial strength grudge. Mm-hmm. Well, well, here's something funny. My father, when I was about 11, no, he said, make sure if you mess around with these girls, make sure you wear rubber because they'll, they'll catch you. That was one thing. The other thing he said is, Never drop out of school for a woman. I was 12. <laughs> now, add that to what you know. I know now, never drop out of school. Don't drop out of college. Stay in school. Don't drop out of college for a woman. What does that make? I mean, if that's not personal experience, why is he telling me that? Yeah. You know, you don't talk third hand about dropping out of school for a woman because it wouldn't come up. You might as well say, oh, don't drop out of college because your dog dies. If your dog <laughs> hadn't died, what the fuck are you talking about? Why are you bringing that up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's hard to keep those, it's hard to keep those lies in line. And it's mm-hmm. hard to keep that. The truth will come out like regardless, like it's just, it's impossible to, to suppress. Well, it's like my, my, uh, Father said, me and my brother are just total opposite. And my brother's a nice guy, but he's a, he's a fetal alcohol syndrome because he's adopted. He, had a, he, he has this thing where he follows like the worst people. And he's always in trouble because of that. But my father said about me, I got one son that can't lie and another one that can't tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> And he was like, he always was like, kind of like weirded out by me not being able to like lie to bosses or things that 
it to his mind would be beneficial. Yeah. But to me, it seems if I start doing that, then I'll, I won't stop. I, I believe in like a personal code, you know, you have to have like that personal code or else um, you, you start to deteriorate. Your, your morals will start to deteriorate. I, I can tell you there has never been a time that I've lied and not regretted it. Yeah. Like it has always been like it, it has never turned out well. I've, the, the few times that I've had to lie to my parents, I think that's like the only time I was like really ever telling a lie was to my parents. But it was always things that they would not understand if I told them the truth. They wouldn't believe me if I told right. the truth because it sounds ridiculous, the shit that I do. For example, when I was 12 years old, I uh, was working in the summer at my grandmother's uh, um, store. She had a pharmacy, that, and on the other side was, like, this medical center. And I was working the candy counter at the pharmacy. And uh, it was it was some bad part of Chicago when these people would come in, kids come in, try to rip you off, all their little tricks and stuff, you know. So um, when there was free time, I, like, tried to enjoy it. So here I was, like, doing a little drawing and stuff and trying to, like, learn how to draw. And uh, I would draw these, like, just, just make up characters. I remember I had, like, drawn up these characters, and I was looking at them, and I tore it up because I didn't want anybody to kind of see it because it wasn't that good. But then I, like, uh, thought, wow, if I throw this away, some garbage man is going to find this and get rich because he's going to, like, <laughs> I'm 12, you know. And so I took it, and I, like, put it, I stuffed pieces into a bottle a glass bottle and then I like was gonna throw it away and I looked at it and said, Yeah, you can still see it through this bottle though. <clears throat> and under the counter there was this can of silver spray paint. So I just start spraying spraying in the bottle. That's when I said you can't see it, but I want to destroy the evidence, so I'm gonna burn it. So I had this bottle full of spray paint. <laughs> <laughs> And I took a match, man, and I was going to drop the match in there, but that flame shot up hot, got my hand, like, all this cooked. And so, and so like, um, that was when I had to tell a lie to my parents because the truth, they would think I was insane. And I know they would say, well, you can't do any drawing anymore because this is how, you, you know. And that wasn't about to happen because that right. was always my biggest fear that I would like be told that you, I can't draw anymore. You know, teachers, I would be afraid they would say that uh, when I was at work and you know, would have like uh, I would have my uh, notebook. I was afraid the bosses would say it, but it, it never happened. But um, it was always a big fear that that would be taken away from you in some way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think the only time I ever, like, hid drawings was when I was a teenager and was drawing my own pornography. Yeah. And so that I just chewed up, and I'm just like, nobody's going to be able to, <laughs> like. <laughs> you know, I would do the same thing. I would, I would, like, destroy that stuff. A few years later, I was drawing it and putting it in mini comics, you know. So, like, I guess that few years of getting out of puberty really means a lot to like your psyche or maybe it's just that now you don't you're not under your parents roof so it's not 
a shameful thing anymore. Yeah. It's not, not a risky thing anymore. Oh, it is. Um, no, definitely getting out from under the roof was very freeing. Like you mm -hmm. could just hear your own person at that point. Yeah. Go back to like home for like Christmas vacation. And that first like year, man, they would treat me like I was 15 again. Where are you going? What time are you going to be back? You know, and I had to tell them, oh, I've been like doing all this stuff on my own for the last year, you know, so I don't think you should be so worried about me like coming in now, you know, but uh, yeah, man, that was, it's a, it's a whole new world, but it takes a little while for them to like catch on that, you know, you, you're a different person. Yeah, you, you have, you, it's weird though, because like I, I have a, I, I kind of get it a little bit now because I have a five-year-old. I understand, like, I, I really try to be careful to allow him his own, even though he's very young, his own personhood, you know, allow him some agency because the result of suppressing that is, there's, there's a long tail to that. Like, there's, like, a lot of, like, self-abuse, a lot of alcohol abuse, a lot of just, like, bad relationships that grow out of that, being that way. Yeah. At the same time, I look at him and like, I can't imagine a time that he's not going to be like my child, you know? So I can kind of see where like your parents changed your diapers and kept you from dying, like literally dying for like the, the first two years you could die at any moment. They kept yeah. you from doing that. So there's probably a feeling of like ownership to some yeah. extent and responsibility that's probably hard to ditch. It could be, my parents were um, pretty, my mother was really emotionally unavailable. Um, both of them were like, you know, verbally abusive, emotionally abusive, physically abusive. Um, yeah. And uh, I remember where I would get like, you know, uh, hurt by something they would say. And I would say like my mother, I'd say, you know, it really hurt my feelings. And she would say, just like my grandmother said, kids ain't got no feelings. <laughs> so like you know that takes a toll on you after a while uh -huh. because you can't trust your parents even though you're you know you're supposed to be able to trust them and you keep trying to like you know connect with them but it never works right that, that takes a toll on you because i think that all these bad relationships that i've had in the past all that was like me trying to like connect with a woman um on an emotional level that i was not able to get as a kid, not seeing that kind of like, even between my parents, there wasn't like a, a lot of romance or anything like that. So I didn't have any idea of what a, I guess like a regular relationship is. Uh, it was all about what I see on, on TV and in the movies, like what a relationship, this idealized kind of romanticized thing. So I was looking for that, but I still had this, these behaviors that happened from when I was a kid, like my father would like, well, you know, like, like there's, like there's tease women, you know, they, they'll say all kinds of crazy shit, you know? Yeah. But then big feet though, you know, some shit like that. You date a white woman. You can't say that kind of shit. You know, they, they for the most part, I've had a couple of white chicks. You could, you know, they would crack back on me and stuff. Everything was cool. But most of them, man, it's like, They'll, they'll tell stories about you for the next 10 years after you've broken up. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, that's true. 
<laughs> I was just kidding. I hate having to say kidding. I hate that. I hate having to say, and I would always have to say, I'm kidding. But yeah, they don't grow up in that. So my, my mother similarly would, like when I was a child, when I was like six or seven years old, would just, I think the way she showed affection was by teasing me relentlessly, just relentlessly, because she could not be soft in any way. So like that was, I realized, you know, seven years after she's been gone, that that's what she was doing. Like she was trying to to relate in that way. So she would tease me. I was a very sensitive kid and I would start crying and she would say, you are no fun at all. And then just walk away from me. <laughs> so like she tortured me to the point of emotional breakdown and then didn't do anything to bring me back from that. So what I learned from that is you just tamp whatever your feelings are, you tamp them down because they're inconvenient for your parents. And it's really hard to not tamp down after a lifetime of doing that. And then they, they wonder why, um, why, why don't you ever smile? Why don't you ever, you know, you know, uh, or, or, or here's my favorite. You know, you can come to me with anything. Just tell me the truth. Hey, you know, it'll be okay. I, you know, I won't be mad. Was, that's the biggest goddamn lie. You know, come, come on, man. Come on. They'll come up mad and say, did you do that? Yes. And then you'll get your ass beat. You know, so, I mean, you know, so if you, if you like, you know, I don't know what kind of example I could use, but if you did something fucked up and you just came to them and said, well, I did this, like, they're going to actually, like, back you up. <laughs> <laughs> so was was it funny um I, so we grew up in around the same era like i my sister and i thought it was hilarious um we'd watch the brady bunch and we'd see how mike and carol would deal with the kids and yep. we would look at each other and be like man fucking white families like how did they I get watch that? yeah i was an only child so i would watch the brady bunch and i'd be like man that's great I wish I could live in the Brady Bunch house. That was like, but now I see like, see it for what it is. But back then as a kid, I was like, just, it was so beautiful the way that they were like all together. Parents are like, you know, just really supportive and, and stuff. But uh, that's how I like pretty much developed everything I know. I learned from television. Right. Hans and Batman, those were my big role models, you know, um, because my father was like a role model in that he was uh, financially supportive of the family. Yeah. And, you know, that's cool. But for me, as again, like you, I was a sensitive kid, you know. So it's going to take it takes more for a sensitive kid. Uh, they need more support, I think. Yeah. You know, they need more understanding. You know, you, they have to be able to talk to you and tell you like what they're thinking, you know, so they can explain what's happening. You know, you as a parent can like say, hmm, I never, you know, I wouldn't have known that. Um, you know, let's work this out. You know, that that's the way that yeah. I would a healthy relation, you know. Uh, but like my, my mother, she she used to uh, communicate passive aggressive. Yeah. When I was a uh, uh, I just graduated from, from high school. It was the summer before I went to college. 
and I had this girlfriend in a, a real nice neighbor's Hyde Park. She had um, her, her, she lived with her, her parents, and she had this, uh, they had this uh, huge apartment that was like four blocks away from the lake. It was like real, you know, it's just fancy. But um, my mother didn't like her because she was white. And so my mother would do this shit like, I'd say, can I borrow the car? Yeah, you can borrow the car. Uh, and then I'm ready to go. And she would say, you ain't going nowhere till you mop this floor. And then, you, so, you know, you, 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 you're you mopping the floor. And I'm like, damn, you know, and I'm kind of talking. She And she said, and you keep up at talking, you ain't going to borrow this car. And, uh, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, it was that, that interesting upbringing, man. Yeah. But uh, it helps with the comics. You know, yeah. all those stories and stuff, you know, um, that was my big thing with Purgatory is I was tr- actually trying to um, give that story away to like an anti-bullying campaign. And I would uh, I uh, contacted like three or four of them and none of them would even write back. And I think the reason being is because it contained like too much racial uh, stuff and. It had a little sexual stuff, but mostly it was the racial stuff. And I don't think that um, white liberals, the ones in charge of like the whole bullying thing, they don't want to hear about the racial stuff. Yeah, they, they want to see it in isolation. Like bullying's just bullying. Like let's not dig down onto like, you know, sexual orientation or racial groups or religion. Let's just take this like whole homogenous concept of bullying. Yeah, you don't get anywhere that way because, like, they like I I know people who I've recently had to fire, but I know people who don't get that that's bullying, like that don't get because they don't talk about it because they've grown up in liberal white society, they don't get that this this racial thing they said is a bullying thing and it's wrong and you cannot make them see it because if you say it, you're just bitching versus yes. they yeah. got it from an official channel. Yes. It's like when you go to work and um, your boss does something that you know is racist and, you know, but you can't prove it because what the the uh, standard is, is that you have to prove that he's a racist. You have to prove that it's in his heart. Right. Which you can. <laughs> yeah. Like if you like give them the example, they'll say, "Oh, well, that doesn't mean anything," you know. And it's because they don't they don't know like these looks that you get, like you know that kind of like half smile, like he knows what he's saying, you know. I used to have this boss that um, he was I, I, I was a delivery uh, a delivery guy, and uh, at this photo lab, he was the owner of the photo lab, and I remember among some of the weird things he would say is he would like um, tell me to go to McDonald's and I'll get him like because uh, the McRibs were out. And he would say, yeah, uh, I want you to go to McDonald's and get me like a large Dr. Pepper, large fry and a McRib sandwich. Those I showed us like the McRibs. I brought that up to HR. You know, if I mean, or if, if if he had a company where there was HR, but okay. you know, if I had brought it up to HR, they wouldn't have like gone anything with it. You know, it was it. Well, 
you know, he says he should like he should just like those McRibs. And I said, yeah, it was the way he said it. He says, well, you know, people say things in different ways. And they oh, God, they have an excuse for all the worst behavior. That's, that's horrible. get less high blood pressure and all this stuff it's constant stress from having to like swallow your emotions yeah it's, it's... yeah there is there's that you have to bear up under mm-hmm. sometimes like covert and sometimes overt racism and at mm-hmm. the same time you have to behave and comport yourself in such a way that you keep them at ease because you yes. don't want to make them nervous with your blackness also, take into consideration that white people see a single reality. And it's not even, in general, it's not even a whole reality. It's a idealized reality that um, they can use to, to avoid having to think about you know, certain things. Right. But... Black people, on the other hand, they have at least three realities that they are dealing with. They're dealing with their reality. They're dealing with white people's reality around them. If they are introspective, they're dealing with that. If they're, you know, spiritual, they're dealing with that reality. And you're you're trying to balance all this shit on top of being placid and uh, professional. Yeah. Which, when I hear that word professional, that just means to me, um, that's a, that's another way of saying white. Yeah. um, You're not dressing professionally. I've had that, you know, dreadlocks, you know, your hair isn't professional. Um, I'm trying to think of like the... um, Oh, I had an office and I had all this shit in my office that um, I like. Nobody had really said anything about it, but but uh, my boss came in and he was like talking about like all the little things like, well, this doll that has like uh, 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 toothpicks through the lips um, hanging on the wall. The this uh, picture of uh, uh, Robert Mitchum choking out. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> he brought up Virginia Tech and he was saying well you can't have this stuff around because it could make people nervous so what he's saying is to me I have to um, comport my actions to what he wants because these invisible theoretical white people 
might get upset about something, you know? So it's not even that anybody's upset about anything. It's just that somebody might get, you know, well, okay, they might, but at this point, you're upsetting the shit out of me. Yeah. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So, um, was... I, I so you said that you started doing when did you start doing mini comics? Maybe it's eighty four. It's eighty four, eighty five. But um, I remember when I was in college, I used to just like knock these things out, mini comics, and like these little zines that were just nothing but poetry and writing and like some some illustrations and stuff. But I mean, I would knock that shit out. And Ted Martin was like um, developed during that time. Okay. As a matter of fact, I got this, I put together this omnibus of material, and in the back, there's like this um, mini comic stuff from, let's see, this first Tad Martin story from 1985. Yeah, this is like, this is like the prototype, you know. Actually, um, to tell you the truth, I did the first Tad Martin story in... When I was in high school, so that'd be 84. Okay. You know, so, and then there was another, uh, hell, I was about 14 or 15, and I did, like, the first Tad Martin store. So, okay. yeah. It, and what, it's been a long time. What, what's what's uh, the story on Tad? Like, what is his, what is his mission? Well. Like, what does he do? What does he do for you? Like, is he a surrogate? Is he like uh Well, you know, um, the uh, I got the name from um, all my children. There's a, a character, Tad Martin. Okay. And he was like one of the main reasons I write. I like the show. I would watch the show is because his character was so. The actor would just throw in these like. Um, these like uh, uh, ad libs, it was so funny, you know, and he would do it like with this like dry, like plain face. He would get into like these situations that were like beyond him, not of his own making. And it reminded me a lot of like about my life and the way he would react to things was like the way that I, and so I really identify with the character. So I took the name and I put it into this book and I started drawing these stories that were just like, you know, it had nothing to do with me just trying to, like, learn how to do the stories and stuff like that. But um, after a while, I was I started doing like stories about myself. And then so I, I would put Tad in that position, being my surrogate, as you'd say. And the thing is, is people would say, well, why do you why do you draw a white character? There's a couple answers to that. The main answer is he's not a white character. He's a biracial character. And that was stated way back when. But people take him as a white character. So he can say things that white people would listen to. Because if a black dude says it, again, it's preaching, it's complaining. White dude says it, they didn't even know I was black until, like, um, I think 2015 when, when Tad Martin number six came out. Nobody knew. The main reason is this. I knew when I started drawing that if I was going to do books, I would have to do a, a character that looked white because white readers, the you know, the bulk of readers, white male readers, don't want to hear about 
the black male saying anything, you know, even mm-hmm. if it's like talking about just like regular shit, then, you know, it becomes a black comic and they don't read black comics. And I used to say that to people and they say, oh, no, that's not the, the way it is. And I would say, that's the way it is. And it, it was proven like, you know, with these um, comic books where they change the character of Puerto Rican or, you know, or a woman or whatever. They freaked the fuck out, you know? So I, I this was back in 1991 that I had figured that out. And I was like, you know, I'm not having it, man. I'm going to do a character that they're going to like, like him or dislike him just based on the quality of the work, not because of any like psychological baggage that they might have. That's where uh, Tad Martin got, you know, came in. It's, it's, it's very similar, like my character, Ivan and Black Sheep. Most of what he does in the comic is just stuff that I've done. And the reason, and he's a Latino, like yeah. a punk rock Latino, because I wanted him to be like somewhat out of place, like the way I was at, at punk shows. But you'd see way more Latinos than me. Like you'd see just me and then like, <laughs> you know, a sea of other people. I could hop in a pit. The pit would dissipate immediately. And I'm just like, I'm just dancing like you guys are. I'm not going to do anything. If, if I drew myself in that situation, they'd be like, well, we want to know what it was like to be like a black kid in, in Ventura in a beach town. And it's just like, I didn't want to talk about that. I wanted to talk about being an aspiring artist who's a drunk and yeah. being like in that weird in-between space between adulthood and your teen years. I just want to yeah. talk about that. I didn't want to talk about being black and being in that interim space. I just wanted to talk about the facts. So, yeah, it's very interesting. It's very similar, it sounds like, to Tad. I think it was the the second issue that I started um, actually being more blunt about it. Like, uh, I would draw, drew his grandmother just, like, black, black, you know, you know, full features and everything. I would uh, talk about race. Again, it wasn't a black man talking about race. It was this right. character that, they, that looked like them somewhat that was talking about it. After a while, I was I got to the point where I realized that I can't tell the whole thing through Tad Martin. It got to the point where I really did want to, like, talk about, like, shit that had happened that involved race and all this kind of stuff. So I had to draw myself. Was that was Purgatory the first time you actually drew yourself in a comic or had you done that before? I did that. Um, Tim Goodyear, he printed. A lot of material that was like that uh, between 1996 and 2006. Uh, I didn't draw. I don't think I drew any regular comic book stuff, but I would have a notebook and I would draw comics in a notebook and I would do it while I was at work. So every time I get a free minute, I would draw something. Um, I used to work at Motorola in a clean room and uh They'd have us scrambling around, you know, you do your process to make the wafers and stuff like that. And um, what I would do is I would have like this, I had this clean room notebook and it was blue grid. And, uh, you know, I, I would uh, be like doing my little thing with, you know, the, the oven or like the acid bath or whatever. And in there I would be constructing the panel in my head. Then when I was finished with this process, boom, I go over, I have two minutes, I draw the panel out. You know, and and that's how I did like shit for that 10 years. And a lot of that stuff, Tim Goodyear published, I think it was 
2006, 2007, it was, uh, Jagoff was uh, one of the titles, and um, Negro Frankenstein was another one. And I, I was like uh, free-handed in ballpoint pen. That's another thing that I would really like people to like know that I did that because I think that it makes, at least to me, it makes the work more impressive because you're doing it on the fly and you're yeah. not fucking it up. I collected all this stuff together and it's like 250 pages worth of shit. And uh, Gary Groth said that he was going to um, print three books. He did the first one. The first one was in the wilderness. That was the first collection. And since that time, he put the Tad Martin book out. He put something else out. I'm going to think. Um, I can't remember all the books and shit, but I'm still waiting right now. I'm waiting to see if he like still wants to do the other books. And yeah. it's a lot of like funny shit, too. I had this story about um, Yahoo Chat and those those phone meat lines, you know, where you would like uh, um, call up some phone line and then like a you know one girl would come on and you know and and you'd hear her introduction and then and then you would talk to her leave your message and shit you know and hope somebody man i did that kind of shit i did yahoo chat i did like all this stuff it was like my dignity just began to like it began to rot away because like it was like i was doing shit that i would not have done under any other circumstance but that thing that, uh, with the Yahoo chat and all that stuff, it started becoming an addiction, and um, it started becoming like fishing. And you, you know, you're here, you're trying to fish for a woman, and if you don't catch anything, you actually spend more time doing the fishing, doing the fishing when you should be doing other shit. Doing the fishing, uh, you know, like I, I would uh, be at work. At Motorola or like at uh, this other place I work, I'd be using their phone, man. I'd go in there and use their phone and call people. Yeah, yeah, it's embarrassing, man, but it's the truth, you know. So I don't consider that meta. I consider that confessional, not necessarily meta. To me, meta is like um, 